Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined uh, by my two co-hosts, uh, Chris Dorides. Chris is the Deputy Chief Economist, and Ryan Sweet. Ryan is the Director of Real-Time Economics. Uh, hi, guys. How's it going? All right. All right. How are you doing, Hang Mark? there. How are you doing, uh, Mark? I see Chris is in the office. Chris? Yeah, yes. you are. Yep. And Ryan, you're still at home. And I am. Uh, I, I think we're going back soon, aren't we? I saw some kind of email from... I think mid-April. Mid-April is yeah. that when people are going back. I guess you can go back already you, if you, you want, back. but yeah. you're back. Anytime, anytime. Anytime you want. So what's the April date exactly? I you think know? that's an official welcome back. An official welcome back. Okay. Yeah. It's always good where, to have an official welcome. Where are you? Uh, actually, I'm in Sea Island, Sea Island, Georgia, uh, uh, at a... Uh, uh, a very interesting kind of think tank function uh, and uh, talking about economics and stagflation, the kind of things we talk about on this podcast, and also uh, po uh, um, uh, defense policy, uh, national security, which obviously, you know, given Russia, Ukraine, and China and everything else, uh, very interesting. Not something I get to listen to very often, but, you know, fascinating and very important. So uh, that's, that's what I'm doing down here in Sea Island. Well, I appreciate your dedication. Yeah, my, you see, I, got, I, I even yeah. I even walk around with my mic. I mean, I brought my <laughs> mic to to not this. like Chris. Chris yeah. goes on vacation, leaves it at home. Yeah, he's speaking from the yeah. wine cellar or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I brought the headphones though. So, hey, yeah, you, know. you did. Yeah, good point. Good point. That does show dedication. Okay, <laughs> okay this podcast uh, we will be talking obviously about Russia, Ukraine, what it means, but through the prism of. Uh, commodity markets, you know, what does it mean for oil, uh, natural gas, and then non-energy commodities, uh, agricultural products and industrial gases and metals, you know, these are things that uh, Russia, Ukraine export to the rest of the world. And obviously those markets have been turned in uh, upside down by events. And, are, you know, that's the key link between what's going on in Russia, Ukraine, and the rest of the global economy, including here in the United States. And uh, we, want, we want to talk that through with the, a, a number of our colleagues that are experts in these markets. So I'll, I'll bring those folks in as we continue the conversation, but uh, we're going to do a deep dive there. But going before we go down that path, though, and not unrelated, obviously, is uh, the big statistic of the week, economic statistic of the week, was the consumer price index uh, that was released uh, on Thursday. So yesterday seems like a long time ago, but uh, just yesterday. So, uh, Ryan, uh, maybe I can turn the conversation to you, and you can give us a lay of the land. What did what happened there? It was, I, you know, obviously pretty ugly, but uh, maybe you can give mm -hmm. us a sense of that. Yeah, it was another ugly month, and it's going to get worse. March is going to be much worse than February. Uh, but the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, was up 0.8 percent uh, between January and February, as compared to a 0.6 percent increase in each of the prior two months. So we're seeing a little bit of an acceleration month over month. Uh, on a year ago basis, the CPI was up 7.9%, which is the uh, largest increase since the early 1980s. Uh, going through the details, energy was a big portion of the increase in February. So you saw re, uh, the CPI for gasoline was up 6.6%. And that doesn't fully capture the recent increase in, in gasoline prices. So we're going to see a big contribution to uh, March CPI through gasoline prices. But it's not all energy related. Uh, you saw some of the reopening components of the CPI, uh, you know, reopening related to, to COVID. So lodging away from home, airfares, they all rose. Now, some of the airfare increases, jet fuel prices, they kind of track each other. 
uh, but also demand. It's also demand driven because Omicron variant, uh, number of cases are falling, number of people going through TSA checkpoints increased. So there was a big pickup in, in travel. So there was some, some demand increase there. Uh, the key shelter component, which we're all keeping a close eye on because that's going to really start to accelerate soon. Uh, that rose a trend like 0.4% uh, for the sixth or seventh consecutive month. Rents are usually pretty sticky, but you know we're going to see some pickup in rents going forward. So if we don't get some good disinflation, you know, some weakening in price growth, uh, we're going to have you know bigger uh, inflation problems, you know, summer the summertime because services inflation is really starting to pick up. Yeah, there was also a big increase in food prices, correct? Food prices, yep, yep, yep good point. Yeah, they're up one percent month over month. Of course, that's also in part energy related because a big correct. part of getting food on the store shelf is transportation, and that's fuel. So that probably played a role. So even even like the core CPI where we strip out you know, the volatile food and energy components. I mean, that rose 0.5% uh, month over month. Uh, but even there, energy plays, plays an impact. And, you know, anything that, any good that's transported, you know, diesel prices, you know, fuel prices all factor into there. So, you know, the, you know, the core CPI doesn't remove all of the impact of energy. Right. Uh, it, and, but the, the 0.5, that's, that that wasn't really. I don't think that was an acceleration month to month. Right? No, it was a deceleration. It was, it was a slowing in the growth. Group. Correct. And that, and that goes to some good news in the report, right? Yeah, used car prices from, dipped. Yeah, point two percent. I mean, you got to squint to see the decline. But no, no, I know. But the, what the message there is a broader message, though, isn't it? I mean, at least. Yeah. Right? At least that in February, price pressures yeah. weren't you know within the core CPI weren't broadening out too much. I mean, there, well, there's. It, yeah. Also, I mean, we've been making the case that, you know, once supply chain disruptions start to abate, and we saw enormous supply chain disruptions, you know, beginning back last summer and fall with the uh, uh, Delta wave of the pandemic, particularly in the vehicle industry, because all the chip plants in Asia shut down, you couldn't get chips, you couldn't produce cars, you got shortages, and we've seen a skyrocketing in vehicle prices, but it feels like they're starting to vehicle prices we're starting to level off. And that goes back to, well, chip plants are now open. We're getting some pickup in vehicle production. Inventories are no longer falling, still shortages, but not it's not getting worse mm -hmm. at least. And that's starting to uh, cause prices to level off. And hopefully that's the start of uh, that goods price deflation you were just talking about. Maybe we see some big declines here in car prices later in the year. That right, so I think that over the next few months, the big story is gonna be energy, boosting the CPI. But at the same time, you got to look at the details because we're already starting to see some evidence that, to your point, that, you know, some, you know, uh, improvement in supply chains because our U.S. supply chain uh, stress index, which is measures, takes an, a number of, of measures of, of stress in the supply chains, has actually improved over the last few months. Uh, and that's starting to show up in some of the, you know, the inflation data that we're getting less inflation from supply chains. So top line, really ugly, got worse, higher yep. energy prices. That's kind of affecting lots of different things, food prices, uh, airline uh, uh, ticket prices, things more broadly. But underneath that, it feels like still high, high rates of inflation, but it doesn't feel like it's getting worse. Maybe we're starting to see signs that it's going to get better. Would that be a right. fair way to characterize it? I think so. Okay. And can I ask one other question, going back to Russia-Ukraine? How much of the increase in oil energy prices that's in the CPI report would you ascribe to Russia-Ukraine? For February or March? 
February. February small. I, a small amount. Really? You think you, you yeah. really think that, huh? Because I my sense is oil prices started rising at the beginning of the year and that's when Russia and okay. Ukraine got on the radar screen and that's when oil traders started sending up oil prices even before they invaded. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking the actual uh invasion, invasion. from that day point. But if you yeah, oh. if you go back when tensions started to escalate, and, you know, uh commodity traders started putting a premium on oil, then yes, it most of it would have been attributed to Russia, Ukraine, yeah. and it's all in March. Right. I mean, in kind of my simplistic frame framing of the of what's going on here, oil prices back before Russia, Ukraine came on the radar screen at the end of last year was 75 bucks a barrel. As Russia, Ukraine came on the radar screen, as it looked increasingly likely as the year started that Russia was going to invade Ukraine, oil trader says, oh, that that's a problem and started driving up oil prices. And that began in January, but really became evident in February, because by February, oil prices were not quite $100 a barrel, but they were pretty close, so up 20, 25 bucks a barrel. And then you had the invasion that coming into March, and now we're at, I, I didn't look today, but- 110. 110, you know, something. Give, like yeah, give or take. Yeah, give or take. Yeah, okay. Either Chris, of your numbers, $294.50? What's that? Is your number two hundred or two hundred ninety-four dollars and fifty cents? Oh, that's the the uh, increase in. We're already playing the game. It sounds like. No, no. I just wonder. Uh, right. Is it your number? Because I won't. <laughs> I won't talk about it. If it. No, if no. That's not my number. number. But the two ninety-four. <laughs> I, I think is what you're saying is uh, as of February, the that's the increase in the monthly cost of living. So for a household, a typical household that wants to buy the same stuff they did a year ago. Today they need to spend two hundred ninety five dollars, almost three hundred dollars more a month to buy. Correct. Stuff. Yep. Yeah. So you can that kind of highlights the cost of inflation. Yeah. The the yeah the downside the negative uh, hit Correct. to uh, disposable incomes, real incomes. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Chris, on the CPI report, uh, anything that Ryan and I missed in our conversation that you want to point out, or anything you take push back on uh, with regard to the conversation? No, not really. The uh, owner's equivalent rent. Right, housing component continues to rise. Right, that's four point three percent year over year. So that's going to continue to feed in. That's not going to bend very quickly. Right, unlike energy and food, but potentially. So that's going to continue to have an effect over the next few months. That's all I would suggest. Right. Yeah. Next few months, or I think so. Yeah, because longer. It, it, there's well, longer, right? Because it's typically right. a one-year lag between house price increases yeah. and the rent increases. So, yeah. And just just for context, I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the housing all-in component of the consumer price index is about a third of the index. That so the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics that puts the data together, they uh, calculate uh, prices for all these different products uh, and services, housing being one of those things. Then then they kind of create a weighted average and the weights are the share of that product or service in the uh, consumption basket and the percent of what the typical household spends uh you know every month on these different things and if you add up housing and this is out-of-pocket expenses mm -hmm. uh and uh housing accounts for about a third of the index so it's a big piece of the pie here it's a little bit more now oh is that right with the okay. new weights it's i'm looking at it right now it's 42.4 percent. that includes shelter oer Owner's equivalent rent, and then also utilities. So if no, you that's, out, but that's 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 got to be the share of core inflation. That's not overall inflation. 
uh, overall. No, I don't think so. I have it right in front of me. I'm staring at no, it. No, wait. The housing component accounts for 42% of the overall index? I don't think so, here. Ryan. Yeah, take a right, look. I'll it's double high. check. Yeah. What, what do you think, Chris? Is that right? That sounds high to me. That sounds really You're high. saying it's new weights? I mean, no, that, I think that's the share of the core. Maybe, I think. maybe it's the no, core. I, uh, it could yeah. be. Yeah. yeah. But, any, but let us know when, when you get there. Uh, but, um, but still, nonetheless, it's a big component. Just for context, I think energy all in, and that's fuel, fuel oils, everything is 7% of the CPI, something like that. And food, 13, 14%. So food and energy is about 20% of the total CPI. So yeah, you're just, right. That was, that was the share yeah. core. That's share core. The headline core. is 32. 33. So you're right. Yeah. Yep. 33%, one third of the Hey, don't fool with the chief economy, is <laughs> what I say, especially when it comes to data. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Just, just, I'm just saying, just remember that. Just remember that. Okay. okay. Right. <laughs> uh, no, I get my fair share of statistics wrong for sure. Um, okay. Uh, let's play the game, uh, right. the statistics game. And just remind folks the, a good, here we, each of us uh, throws, throws out a statistic uh, and the rest of the group tries to use deductive reasoning to figure out what that statistic is. The best statistic is one that is not so easy that it's a slam dunk. Uh, that is, but it's hard. Uh, it's, it's not too hard uh, that, you know, we'll never get it. It's nice if it's kind of related to the, it has to be a statistic that came out that week, more or less. I take license with that every once in a while, unfairly, but you know, that would be good. And if it's related to the topic at hand, which in this case is, you know, Russia, Ukraine, oil, uh, prices, inflation, that kind of stuff. But mm -hmm. again, you know, these are these are loose rules. So did I get the rules right, Ryan? Yeah, you've got Because I know you're a stickler for these these rules. <laughs> yeah, you're good. Right. You got them right. I got it right. Okay. Yeah. Good. Very good. Um, and uh, if you if you do well at this game, you get a cowbell. So, and I can see one of the cowbells over there right in the here. corner, and there's one right next to Ryan. Okay, very good. Okay, we, we all strive to get a cowbell. Uh, okay, uh, who wants to go first? Uh, Chris, you want to go first? Uh, sure. 527. Is that, that 527? Is that 527? Uh, 527. Dollars? Nope. Nope. No. Uh, is, it, is it related to the CPI? No. No, I didn't think so. Was it related to the, the other big number that came out this week that we didn't talk about is the job opening labor turnover sur survey, JOLTS? Nope. No? Wasn't that? It wasn't nope. hires or quits or anything like that? No? No. no. Is it gasoline is it, Go ahead, Ryan. What's that? Is it gasoline related? It is uh, energy related. Energy related. 527. Okay, I, I am going to bring in Close. one of the other guests uh, because they may be able to, to, to hang with you, Chris. Uh, I'm going to bring they in better. Chris Lafakis. Chris, uh, welcome uh, to Inside Economics. Hi, Mark. Thank you. Chris, are you? is this your first time on Inside Economics? I can't remember. It's my second time on the pod. Oh, it is. Okay. And how did you do on the first one? I can't remember. Um, how were your reviews? Did you get good reviews from the uh, audience? I can't. Did I, get, did I get one thumb up? One, one thumb? Okay, one uh, thumb. That That's pretty good. We, we, we can't aspire to get two thumbs, I mean. <laughs> right. And, and Chris is uh, one of our uh, 
experts on the oil market uh, and energy markets more broadly. And uh, Chris, do you have any idea what Mr. Dorides is talking about here? Dr. Dorides, I should say, 527? So is it a price? It is not a price. Oh, okay. Is, uh, is it a quantity? Yes. It is a quantity. Yes, yes it is a quantity. <laughs> oh. It's oh, not. Does it that have to do with oil rigs? Oil rig counts. Oh, bing, 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 bing. Yeah. Oh no my way. gosh! Oh, Ebe. <laughs> so what is it? What that is your most impressive one. What are you talking about? I've had many impressive ones over the past. <laughs> that's year. more. Uh, yeah, five hundred twenty. That's that's good. That's impressive. And I schooled Mr. Lafakis, the, the that, resident yeah. expert. Yeah. Phone okay, a friend. Explain, didn't work. explain, Chris. What what what's going on there? That is the U.S. oil rig count. As uh, active rotary rigs. Active rotary rigs, Baker, Baker Hughes, rig count, weekly count. What Very well done, Mark. That was amazing. <laughs> oh, uh, I think he's now sucking up. What are you guys? <laughs> yeah, don't worry. Mark won't get my numbers. Yeah, yeah, right. So, Chris, <laughs> 527, give us context, okay? Yeah, uh, it's, that is up eight by eight rigs in the week, right? So, that's that pretty significant. That is, is significant. significant. It is okay. significant. It had been relative. Well, it has, had actually been growing uh, recently. As the price of oil has has gone up, um, but eight in a week is is a is a is a pretty uh, sizable jump. It was actually flat the week before, um, and it's up 218 from a year ago. And for those oh. of you who care on the pod, it is actually up 238 from the time President Biden took office. Although five, it's still low, isn't it? It's still low compared uh, to pre-pandemic. Correct. Pre-pandemic, it was 683. 683. So, uh, and so, so we're increasing. moving in the right direction. We need, obviously, more oil, given what's going on. And uh, it feels like you're saying that the, they're, they're increasing, the, the rig counts are increasing, and they're increasing at a pretty good rate here now. That's at least in the last week, in the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Last few so. weeks, right. Which makes sense, right? I mean, because at these oil prices, these guys can make a lot of money, right? You would think, right? You would but, think. Uh, they're also, you know, the uh, the drillers are also indicating that, you know, they've got uh, their own supply chain issues and uh, trouble finding workers. So they can't uh, accelerate as quickly as perhaps we might otherwise expect given the, these prices. They're also uncertainty around the price itself, right? So um, they're not going to rush to the oil fields if this is a temporary increase. We okay, need that increase, I'm going to go ahead, Ryan. What were you saying? I was going to say that the, Rig counts feed into GDP in non-residential structures investment, and that helps offset some of the, the hit to GDP growth from you know, weaker consumer spending because of higher prices at the pump. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the, when you think about oil prices and how they impact the economy, it's cross-currents, right? The, the negative to hit to the economy is what we talked about, you, you know, if you got to put more money into your gas tank, you as a consumer, you have less to spend on everything else. Therefore, less spending, less production, that's less GDP. So it's a hit. But the positive is that the U.S. produces a lot of oil. Uh, we produce, you know, I think 20, Chris, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but 20 million barrels a day, you know, give or take. Which, by the way, is a lot of oil. That's, you know, uh, 100 million barrels a day uh, globally. So 20 million barrels is a lot of oil, but so it's a big part of the, uh, of the economy. And so if you get higher prices that lifts rig counts and production and investment. And so the net of all that is still a small negative for the economy, but it's a small negative. It's not a, it's not a big negative. 
It's a small correction. We consume about 20 million, but we produce about 11.6 million. But I mean, this is the most substantial increase in the rotary rig count since 2015, 2016, when, you know, there was, that was a near death experience. That was akin to the 2008 uh, great recession for a lot of these mid uh, and small size oil drillers. Oh, I got that wrong. Oh, oh, so we can, oh yeah, we consume 20 million barrels. We produce 11.6 million barrels per day. And about eight of those are, so that gap is, is like we, we import um, around um, eight, eight, and we produce, we export around eight or nine, but um, the, you know, the, so, you know, the U S consumes about 20 million barrels a day, but only produces about 11.6. Well, uh, square that circle for me. I'm not, I'm not following the arithmetic. So 20 million, we consume, we produce yeah. 10 imports and exports kind of net out. Well, we import a lot of product too. Um, we, we import a lot of product. So 20 million is kind of the, um, you know, demand is measured as petroleum product supplied. So that's oil plus diesel plus jet fuel plus heating oil, all of those together. The U.S.'s entire consumption is about 20 million um, barrels oh, per day. Oh, you're saying, you're saying crude plus the refined product is 20 million. That's correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so but we produce tw- ten million in crude, and how much of crude do we consume? Ten? Uh, oh, oh, how much do the refineries use? Yeah, uh, it 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 is around fourteen million. Boy, I'm so confused with these numbers. Yeah, <laughs> how does this all add up? Uh, There's a distinction between you know oil and petroleum products, and so um, you know the. The, the U.S. Is, is, if you can think of it, very close to like a uh, net neutral. You know, we were a, a big importer, but now we, we, we're net neutral. Okay, I'm going to bring close in, because I saw a hand, I'm going to bring in two of our other colleagues that are also oil experts, energy experts. You can see this is a, you know, a lot of moving parts here, so we need a lot of expertise. Uh, Tom Nichols, Tom, welcome. Hello, thank you. Hey, Tom, are, is this your first time on Inside Economics? Yes, it is. Okay, uh, welcome. Uh, it's good to have you. And uh, how long have you been with Moody's Analytics? Coming up on seven years. Really? I didn't know yeah. that. It was. It feels like you. You know, you've been around for like seventeen years. I don't. <laughs> it's good though. Seven years, good. Uh, and Juan, Juan Pablo, uh, Juan, you, you. Now you've been with us for seventeen years. Uh, no? How long? Almost. Uh, maybe like fourteen. I lost count. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, many years. <laughs> many, many years. Many years. Okay, Juan, you raised your hand. Can you right. kind of get the, put these numbers, get them squared away here? What's so we, we produce, uh, so the 20 million barrels yeah. is, as you said, is, uh, is products. So you, you, um, that's, that, is, that is not crude oil. That's like what refineries yeah. produce, and that's $20 million barrels. So... From that 20 millions, we produce 11.6 crude oil. Um, but we also produce another like seven to eight million in, in byproducts. Got it. Okay. So in total, you have uh, 11.6 crude. You have to add the, the eight uh, that is the products. And this, this includes natural gas, plant uh, liquids. That's a big one. That's like almost six million barrels. And Got that's it. like a byproduct of uh, crude oil extraction. Uh, and then you have uh, refinery processing gains, and that's like another million barrels. So overall, 
the U.S. produces uh, between what it produces in crude oil and products, I would say it's uh, close to, to 20 million because okay. Okay. Uh, we are basically right now like a not an imp- net importer or net exporter. We are like in, in the middle. Like we produce as much as we need to, to, to consume. That makes perfect sense. That, that, so it's 20 million in consumption, 20 million in production, kind of right. what I was saying. But you got to make this distinction. That's what well, these numbers get confusing because we're, t- we're right. making a distinction between crude, you know, kind of the raw material right. for these and and use fuels. And right. it, the number 20 million also includes the, 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 the final product. Correct. Got it. Hey, I got one other question. So when the when you know you, you look at the data that comes from the EIA, the Inter- Energy Information Administration, that you know does a lot of this data calculation, they say, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that global consumption of crude is 100 million barrels a day. Is you know roughly is that correct? It's that's, that's a not refined product. That's crude, isn't that's, that right? No, that's oil. Oil liquids—that's what they call oil liquids. Oh, so that does include yeah. refined product. So that's yes. that's that's yeah. everything. That's okay. That you don't consume crude oil directly. Uh, Got it. You, you yeah. produce, you consume products. Yeah. Okay. So right. 100 million barrels is, so of the 100 million barrels a day, that we, of of everything that fuel, uh, crude and refined product, 20 million is here in the United States, roughly. Yeah. Twenty percent of the pie. We are still the biggest consumer of. We're still the biggest consumer, but the good news is because of the increase in production due to fracking and all the natural gas and oil, that now we are you know we we basically produce what we consume, and so therefore the that that's kind of the key statistic we're trying to understand what the impact of higher prices or lower prices means for the broader economy, and it's saying pretty much a wash. You know, negative yeah. for consumers, a positive for producers, but net net kind of like washes out. In our, in, our, in our calculations, just to give people a rule of thumb, for every ten dollar increase in the price of a barrel of oil, you get a reduction in GDP, the valuable things we produce in the subsequent year, of one tenth of one percent. That kind of gives you a sense of it. Yeah, I would say that it's still a net negative for the U.S. economy because the distribution of the gains is different from the distribution of the expenditures. So for instance, you've heard how, you know, energy, there's a lot of uh, historical opposition to raising the gas tax because people say it's regressive. It hurts people on the lower end of the spectrum, income spectrum the most that have the highest propensity to spend. Whereas, you know, on the producer side, a lot of those are, you know, rents that are collected and paid out in the form of dividends or share buybacks that benefit um, consumers that have um, higher savings rates. So if you actually measure the net economic impact, even though the U.S. is, you know, energy independent, if you will, 20 million barrels in, 20 million barrels out, it's actually negative for the economy. Yeah, I, I think that's our, that's our, that's what we're finding, right? I mean, yeah. one, but a small negative, at least yes. at, at least at prices that. You, I mean, if you get from, I think it might be different if you go from seventy-five bucks a barrel to eighty-five. That's different than going from one fifty to one sixty. I think yeah. it's it's kind of a non an economist with a non-linear relationship. But at the prices that were normally prevailing, seventy-five, eighty, one hundred bucks a barrel. A ten dollar a barrel increase results in a one tenth of one percent reduction in GDP for the reasons you nicely articulated, Chris. Um, 
Tom, any any uh, anything else you want to add uh, on that conversation we just had around oil? I, th I think we're going to circle back around to it. Yeah, so okay, fine. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Hey, there's one other top before we go continue on with the game. Maybe this is a good time to talk about one other aspect of oil and energy markets. Going back to Chris's statistic, and that is there's. Uh, been this hand-wringing and debate and discussion about why haven't there been a bigger pickup in oil production in the United States? Why aren't there more, you know, oil rigs are rising and they're rising more quickly, but why did it take so long? You know, why aren't we seeing, you know, why isn't it at, at why aren't we back to pre-pandemic levels, 680 on the rig count? Why are we still below? So, uh, Tom, you want to weigh in on that? And obviously there's a lot of debate is getting into the you know, it's getting a little politicized now too. We had a we had a webinar. I expressed my views on it, and I got a lot of pushback. And you could feel the kind of the political tension, you know, starting to build. And and, and I don't. We don't want to do that. We want to be clear eyed here. But so, what's what's your sense of what's going on here? Why? Well, first of all, do you do you agree with that characterization of what I just said? And 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 what's going on? Yeah. So I think there there are a couple of reasons that we're not seeing drilling at the same pace that. We typically would at this price level, right? You know, in the in the past decade, really, U.S. producers have been really aggressive. As soon as they see prices jump, it's drill, baby, drill, and that has not really materialized in sort of the post-COVID environment. I think one reason is a lot of oil companies got locked into low spending plans during COVID, so they were a little bit slower off the floor than they would have been. So that effect at this point has kind of gotten washed out, but. I'd say initially that was an important cause. Currently, I think a lot of it is due to the same supply chain issues that we're seeing in any goods producing industry. You know, we're talking about the the difficulty get with inflation, difficulty getting materials, difficulty getting labor. So all of those things are affecting the oil market as well. Um, a lot of oil companies are talking about the increase in price for um, the metals that they need to finish the wells and case the wells, the the sand that they need to frack wells, the, the, the you know the fracking fracking propens they call them um, that they use to actually extract the oil. And then another effect that we're beginning to see uh, is an increase in capital costs. Um, there's starting to be a push amongst lending amongst lenders amongst the financial industry to decarbonize their lending portfolios, basically um, with the expectation that climate change or climate change regulation further down the line um, is going to have a negative effect on certain industries, mining being really chief amongst them. So um, that is beginning to take effect as well as the increase in capital costs, along with the regular supply chain issues that everyone's facing. Okay. So it's a range of reasons, not one. So yeah. again, reiterate, number one is what? Reason for uh, the slow pickup? Initially, I would have said it was the um, getting locked into low expenditure budgets uh, coming out of COVID. Number two? Supply chain issues. And that's everything from labor to materials. Yeah, like labor sand, and materials. Whatever they need. Exactly. Right. And, and three is? Uh, three is capital costs. Cap, cap, the cost, just the cost of capital here to actually, given the shift in capital markets related to climate change and fossil fuels and that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. You, you, okay, I'm gonna stop right there. I'm gonna go to Chris Lafakis, and then I'm gonna go to you, Juan. Uh, uh, in your mind, uh, did Tom get that right? Is that ranking is how you would rank things, or would you rank them a little bit differently? Or would you? Is there another factor that he didn't mention that you think should be mentioned in the in the top three? 
Uh, yeah, I would probably add three factors. I think that there are a lot of different factors. factors that, are they same factors or different? Factors? I would add, I would build to what Tom said. So three okay. additional factors. Okay. Um, uh, he's, he's right on with, in terms of, you know, the increase in, in input costs uh, that are constrained. We have constrained supply. We have um, ending COVID and then obviously capital costs as well, which is a, a big part of this. You know, we're sitting here. Another perspective that I would I would add though is we're sitting here. This is Sarah Week, you know. So this is the one week in the year where the who's who in the oil industry gather um, in Texas and they meet and they talk to each other. And a lot of the CEOs are talking to each other right now, and they're saying we're doing what our shareholders want. You know, many of us, um, you know, almost went bust in 2015, 2016, and the message that we heard from shareholders loud and clear is retire debt. Um, buy back stock and pay dividends. And these strategies have been very successful in lifting company stock prices. And the people that are making the decisions are CEOs and they're compensated based on how their stock price performs. So they're listening to the market. The market is saying, this is what you need to do um, to get a better valuation. And, and they're doing that. So I would say that reason number four would be uh, shareholder um, uh, pressure or um, the decision to... Um, not reinvest capital that is is um, earned, uh, um, and, and instead um, use that to retire um, shares and and institute buybacks. Um, I would say that reason number five is, you know, we with with after we came out of the global financial crisis, um, it took us a while to get our mojo back. Those animal spirits really didn't start roaring until five, 10, 15 years down the road. Um, and many of these small and mid-sized producers were, were shell-shocked. Uh, they, they suffered near-death experiences, and they're very reluctant to, um, you know, put it all on the line again um, so soon. Um, they want to make sure that the price increases is a little bit durable. Um, and then the last reason that can I would I, add can is... Can I just say on that one, that feels kind of like a variation on the theme of Tom's number one, right? Is it, would you, you know, Tom, Tom is saying... Everyone got creamed in the pandemic. Getting everything revved back up is going to take some time. That's kind of sort of what you're saying, right? Right, Tom? Sure. Did I get that right? Yeah, I think what Chris is highlighting is that this trend is, you know, it's past the COVID point, And now we're seeing prices leap for another reason that is not necessarily tied to the market. And how much can we actually invest on this? Can we go to the bank on the recent price increase or not? I see. Okay, fair enough. Yep. Okay. Right, Chris? Is that... That's right, because you know of what we saw in 2015, 2016, which by the way, the rig, the active rotary rig count increase that Chris highlighted is the most substantial pickup since that period of 2015, 16. And we know how that turned out for all these energy companies. They got creamed, right? Their stock prices went to single digits um, and investors wanted nothing to do with them. Um, so I, I think that that that's you know animal spirits the lack of that, the lack thereof is is a big um, component of this as well. Um, the last point that I would add is we had an inventory of drilled but uncompleted wells, so-called ducks, back then, where you know the rotary rig count measures when the when the drilling rig is working, um, but after it is drilled, that that well needs to be completed before um, oil can begin to flow. And that's where fracking comes in. Um, and so we had drilled lots of holes everywhere, um, but had not um, turned them into actual producing wells. Um, and we don't have that inventory overhang um, here this time around. So it's not like um, 
ready-made production to fall back on. It's you have to drill a new well, you have to start the new process, um, and and um, as such, it's very difficult for um, for producers to um, to 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 ramp up production. Got it. Got it. Okay, Juan. I know I left you last, and it's all, you know all, we got six different reasons why producers <laughs> have been slow to ramp it up. Is there anything else you want to add to the uh, list, or would you reorder any of the things that these these two other guys uh, put forward? I, I will add, add two factors. Uh, one is related to what the financial situation that Chris was mentioning, uh, and I think this the nature of this uh, oil rally is different from the one we had in the uh, 2000s, early 2000s. Uh, this, this that one was a demand-driven rally. Uh, so for investors, that was easier to see that the, the rally had like, it would be a long rally and it actually uh -huh. lasted from 2002, three to until 2008, uh, when the crisis, uh, in the U S uh, kind of killed the rally momentarily. And then it came back again, 2009 and 10, uh, this, this rally is different because it's, it's a supply shock. And it's, very, it's a lot of, there is more uncertainty. It, it, could, it could last, you know, two weeks. It could last one year. It could last two years. So there is more uncertainty. On, if you are an investor, you have a, you know, it, it, everything depends on the price of oil for you as an investor. So it's, uh, it's, there is more at stake. Uh, and I will think they will be more cautious. That is, uh, a, that is a very great point that I hadn't even contemplated but that feels right to me right? it's a different prices are up for a different reason that may not be as durable therefore am i actually gonna you know plunk down these fixed costs that unnecessarily right. start a rig yeah excellent right. point hey uh, oh sorry go ahead one the other one was uh it's more like a from geography point of view uh the u.s doesn't have as much reserves uh, shell, shell oil was never supposed to be like a hundred year, like like Saudi Arabia. They can produce for a hundred years. Uh, shell oil reserves are like maybe lasting. They might last ten years if they keep producing at this rate. So there is more as time pass on. There is a, every new, you know, drilling is is more expensive, it's more difficult to find. It's more, more there is more technology required. Uh, every new uh, feel is more, you know, difficult. The, the easy ones are, are gone. Got it. So, uh, yeah, uh, Chris Dorides is yeah. biting at the bit here to get in. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, well, on that last point, one thing, I was looking at the Baker Hughes report today. One thing that stood out to me was the 92% of the wells are actually horizontal. Right. Versus vertical. Well, that, oh, I would have thought so the explain opposite. that. Explain that for people. Well, they, well they, maybe they the experts yeah. can explain. But Yeah, <laughs> explain what, what that means. Seems more complicated. Well, the, the horizontal is the main technology used for shell formations. Uh, so you, you drill a hole and then you go horizontal uh, because the, the, the oil is, is trapped between rocks and it's not like deep, it's just like spread out. Uh, so you have to, there is some guessing when you drill, you don't exactly know how much oil is around that particular well. Uh, with traditional extraction, you deep, you go deep, like in the Gulf of uh, Mexico, you go very deep, and there is more certainty, like to know how much oil is in that particular uh, field. And it's think about the uh, tiramisu versus jelly donut, you know, and 
the vertical is the jelly donut. You go down, you put the straw, it comes back to the surface automatically. That's easy. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, except, you know, Rockefeller got all the easy ones back in 1900. (laughs) What kind of jelly, Chris? Oh, it's got to be cherry. I mean, cherry cherry is the best. I can taste it. (laughs) Hey, uh, one thing you guys did not mention, which I found a little surprising, and you you gave me almost a list of 10 reasons. Nobody mentioned regulation. Yeah. What's that all about? (laughs) I mean, that's, that's all I hear. That's what we heard on the webinar. You guys aren't thinking about regulation. You know, you can't get permits, uh, Keystone Pipeline, you know, so forth and so on. What, what's going on there? Isn't that doesn't that matter? It's not even on your list, Chris, no. Lapakis, Juan, it's, Tom. I mean, it's no, not, not on my list. On the, not even on the yeah. list. Whoa. Yeah, I mean, That's, it's just you know, there's things that actually matter, and then there's things that people talk about, and sometimes those don't exactly match. Okay. Okay. Anybody well, want to push I, back on that one at all? I just I'll, I'll be I'll play devil's advocate. Why okay, yeah. why not? What what is why isn't Keystone XL an issue here? Right? Wouldn't we be in a better position if had that been approved? Close well, uh, well, that that was supposed to bring the oil from Canada. It's not yeah. doesn't have anything to do with the U.S. production. Uh, I think in terms of pipeline, there is not a bottleneck as far as I understand right now. So there is uh, the constraints from the Supply side are more about like labor, uh, supplies, drilling equipment. And to me, that's, that's the immediate uh, constraint. It's not a legal uh, framework because you can still drill in, in the Permian you know, basin in Texas or North Dakota. Those are still there. I mean, there is no, there are some limitations uh, in some new areas, but they all the traditional areas are still open for I, I think I read that the the Biden administration said that there were like uh, you know I don't know a, a big number of l- permits that were nine thousand nine thousand yeah. permits. Yeah. So that that was not that doesn't seem to be the the main reason why. Okay. Yeah, I mean, what what does this uh, pipeline have to do with uh, the CEO of Continental Resources' decision to uh, drill for some new wells? I'm sorry, I don't connect those dots, Chris. What do you? Yeah. What's your point? So that oil, you know, if you built Keystone Pipeline, that would bring oil from Canada into the United States. Oh, but I see. What does that have to do with the price of drilling. tea in China? Oh yeah, you're saying that has nothing to do with drilling, was putting up dr- uh, rigs here in the U.S. That's not going right. to make a difference. Yeah. Okay. Tom, did you want to say yeah. something? I saw your hand. No. No. Tom Nichols. I think no? they okay, nailed fine. it. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. Well, while we're on the subject, the other thing I wanted to ask is kind of the way I think about this in, in my frame is that you, you got you know you're not going to put up a rig unless you can make money right and if you th- think about the cost of you know putting up a rig and start pumping oil that's variable it varies over time right now it's probably on the high side because labor is more expensive cost of sand all the other materials is more expensive the cost of capital as you guys pointed out is more expensive so my, my thought is that for the typical well here, uh, rig in the U.S., it's somewhere around 75 bucks a barrel, maybe. It could be even a little higher than that. So you need to get above that price on a consistent basis and believe it's going to stay above that price for an extended period before you actually plunk down the dollars to invest to open up a rig. And if you look at the data, 
oil prices really didn't get much above 75 bucks a barrel for any length of time, at least not long enough that would give anyone confidence that it's going to stay there for very long. And before Russia invaded Ukraine, before it got on the radar screen at the start of this year, oil prices were 75 bucks a barrel. So from an economic perspective, that's, eco that's, just, that's just economics, right? I can't make money. Therefore, I'm not going to put up a rig. Therefore, that's why we hadn't seen more rigs. Does that, and I know 75 bucks is, you know, highly variable. It's hard to measure and who knows. And that's kind of the typical that I'm paying with a broad brush. Some, some rigs can put up more cheaply, some more, more expensive, but on average, is, what do you think about that frame for thinking about this in, in, in terms of uh, answering this question, why we haven't seen more rig development? What do you think, Tom, Chris, Juan, anybody? Do I have this right? And is that a good frame? I think uh, the the break-even point is yeah that's 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 uh, the key the key variable for for drilling. Yeah. No? So the last I think that the, the good source for for that is that the Dallas Fed they release a survey every year every quarter and they ask uh, all companies what is the your break-even point uh, for drilling. Uh, last year they do it every the, the, that question goes into like the first quarter of every year. Last year, I think it was around 60, 55 to 60. 53. 53. Uh, I, I expect that this year is coming up maybe next week. It's coming up soon. Two weeks. I, I, I expect a big jump in the in the break-even point. Yeah. So you think my 75 bucks might be roughly right? Or maybe we'll see, I guess. In a week that, will be a, a, that will be a huge thing. Yeah, yeah it's going to be lower than... It's going to be lower than 75, but it's definitely going to be higher. I mean, because as yeah. Tom mentioned, you know, the cost of sand and drilling rigs and labor have all increased. But I mean, so these the survey typically moves by, you know, five, maybe 10 would be like a huge increase. Um, so, I mean, I think it goes back to these 10 reasons that we gave you of why the U.S. producers have, even when it's profitable for them to drill, have not drilled. Got it. Okay. Well, uh, let's move on with the game. Oh, I'm sorry, Tom. Go could ahead. I, could I briefly interject one thing? I, yeah. I just want to define the difference between a rig and a well. Okay. Um, I think some people use them interchangeably, which actually isn't right. I do. A, so, a, yeah, yeah, so a rig, a rig <laughs> yeah. drills a well. A rig, a rig creates a well, a well. Okay. and then a well produces oil. So a rig okay. can create multiple different wells. Okay. So when you see the rig count rise, that doesn't mean the number of wells. That means the number of people who are drilling new wells. Got it. Got it. Okay. So you can have multiple wells off of one rig. Yeah. And you right. do. Yeah. And you do yeah. typically. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. And does that vary very much? I mean, is it, does it, is it two wells or 10 wells or 20 wells? Does it, I mean, or that, that's just, it's all over the map. I, I don't exactly know, but the, typically the way it happens is a company will hire a drilling crew. And that's when the rig goes active nice. and they'll hire them for a certain amount of time and they'll drill as many, as many wells as they can in that time. They won't necessarily begin production from all of them right away. Got it. Got it. Okay, yeah. I would say well, probably eight to 10 is what you would get. And it's, you go straight down and then you start going out in branches in 360 degrees um, in order. That's the horizontal drilling aspect of, and that's 92% of all drilling um, in the, in the U S Chris, you wanted to well, slow, yeah. While we're on the yeah. topic, what what is the time typical timeline between drilling a well and then the production? I think that's on a lot of folks' mind right now in terms of 
increasing supply. Or, or you, maybe what's the length of time between a rig and then a well, a well and then you get oil. <laughs> yes, yes. What's that like? Is that like weeks? Is that days? Is that months? Or what is that? It's about three to four months. Um, really? So once you see it show up in the rigs, um, yeah. it's probably another two months in, in terms of when it can actually start impacting production. But you know, if a CEO wanted to make a decision today, um, the oil would show up probably four months from now. For, uh, you said two months. Well, two months for it to show up in rigs. So you make a decision. Oh, I you see. You have to do. I see. Yeah. I see. I see. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to increase production. Four months later, that's going to show up in oil. That Right. Got yes. it. Got it. Okay. Hey, we forgot about the game, I think. <laughs> yeah, Ryan. <laughs> Let's go back to the game. Uh, Chris, uh, Ryan, I'm sorry. Uh, you're up. Sorry. What's your statistic? 11.7. 11.7. 11.7. Um, that a CPI, it has a CPI. It's a calculation, but it includes the CPI. Oh, I know what it is. Is this what you showed me the other night? Where you no, said no, that's that's another eleven percent, eleven point. That was eleven point seven. Tell is. people yeah, what that was. Both of them. So that <laughs> was the uh, retail gasoline price as a share of average hourly earnings for production workers. So, you know, that's. It's risen since the pandemic, but it's still much lower than it was in you know, 2008, 2009. So. so the cost of gas per gallon divided by how many how much, what dollars per hour for person working, how much they're earning. So you're saying right, right now the cost of a gallon of gasoline is 11%-ish of the, uh, the, the, the amount they're making per hour. Correct. And, and that by historical standard is? Pretty low. Pretty low. Right. Yep. Yeah, which is pretty. It goes to back to the earlier point that higher oil prices hurt the economy, but not right. that much. Certainly not to the degree that it did twenty, thirty years ago. So, like, mm -hmm. if you go back twenty, thirty years ago, it was a lot higher. It was like, what was it? I can't remember. Do you remember? I think it was north of twenty. More north of twenty. Yeah, twenty percent. Okay, but okay. But so, but that was your statistic. That's not the eleven points. No. Oh, okay. I got it. You do? I'll be Misery really impressed. Index. Oh, Misery wow. Index. Oh, good one. That's awesome. Good job, that Chris. That is awesome. All right. And Chris usually does not get that. I know. I know. <laughs> this, right. is like, yeah, this is like the oh, unicorn. Explain the misery index <laughs> for everybody. All right. So the misery index is a uh, combination of the unemployment rate and inflation. So uh, Arthur Oaken created this back. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mark. Was it the late 70s, early 80s? I didn't know. I actually did not know that Arthur Oaken invented mm -hmm. the misery index. Is yeah, right? I think I forget which president he did it for, but he did oh, calculate okay. it. Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. And it's just a way of measuring, you know, pain for consumers because, you know, what's important to consumers is the labor market. So that's the unemployment rate and inflation. So when you combine them, it's 11.7% uh, today. Uh, average since the 1980s, 8.4%. Or average since the 1990s, excuse me, 8.4, but it's well below what we saw, you know, when we had, you know, the high inflation in the 70s and 80s. So, I, a lot of people use the misery index as a, as a proxy for, you know, are we headed towards stagflation? So, that's why I was surprised. You know, you're hearing about stagflation a lot. Yeah. But by definition, stagflation is high unemployment and high inflation. Right now, we have high inflation, but very low unemployment. Strong economy. So it's not stagflation. Maybe no, it's not stagflation, but it's not stagflation. 
Okay. Right. I, just, I, okay. All right. Uh, get. Do you know what the all-time high is on the on the misery index? Twenty-five. No. No. Did you just calculate it? No. Well, I, I know this. I know things, Ryan. All right, <laughs> I'm gonna check this. Yeah, he doesn't believe me. Twenty-two. 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 Ah, really, not that far off. I, well, it's a pretty good know. guess. Yeah. yeah. That's a half a cowbell. You, you yeah. think that's a good guess? Yeah. All right. Well, all yeah. right. I'll, I'll give I it to so. you. It's in the ballpark. It's a, it has a 20 handle to it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I know I'm tough. Crystal Fackus is going, man, he's tough. Yeah, I am tough. Oh, we're really tough on this. You got to be right. You got to be I know, spot yeah. on. Right. So 11.7. So that's high in the context of the past 30 years, but it's, it's – uh, it's been a lot higher. And this goes to another statistic that came out this week is you, the University of Michigan survey, right? Mm -hmm. So what happened and there, Ryan? Consumer confidence fell. Yeah. Uh, One-year inflation expectations jumped, but that's yeah. not surprising. That's food prices. That's gasoline prices, which caused consumers to expect more inflation down the road. Uh, but if you look in the detail, it's all, most of it's gasoline. I mean, gasoline just crushes the University of Michigan confidence survey. 81% of consumers expect higher gasoline prices down the road. So I'm not quite sure what the other 19% of people, you know, what they're thinking, but, you know, the majority of people know that higher gasoline prices are coming. And that affects their, their psyche. Well, that was a good one. And Chris, uh, uh, bravo. That was a good, good guess. Yeah, Chris, that was really impressive. That was really uh, quite impressive. Yeah, um, <laughs> All right, what's yours, Mark? Okay. Uh, you ready? Yep. Uh, and I hope, I hope this is a good statistic. I'm a little nervous about it, to be frank. It's this week, right? This week. It is, yes, it is this week. Actually, I'm going to give you two statistics because they're related and they might help you, you know, get to the to the answer. Because I'm a little afraid mm -hmm. it might be too hard. The first statistic is 3.41 percent. Just absorb that for a second. 3.41 percent, and the second one is 2.3. Five percent, two point three five percent. Okay, what right, is so that number? Those numbers, I should. They're say. related to inflation expectations. They, in, very good. All very right. good. I just got to figure out which one. Oh, you very good. Is this the New York Fed's? No, Consumer, it's not the New York no. Fed's measure inflation expectations. Although that's a good good guess. Yeah. Oh, now, how did you know I was going to do inflation expectations? You just I can forecast felt. you, Mark. Oh, yeah. yeah. Whenever inflation you got comes a model out, for yeah, me now. Yeah, it's inflation <laughs> yeah. expectations. Is yeah. it our pulse combination of uh, inflation? No. And what is our pulse index? What is that for the oh, I, I haven't checked. I didn't check this week. No, no, no. I meant in. Oh, it's oh, we just take uh, you know all these different measures of consumer-based and market-based measures of inflation expectations, combine them together to come up with you know kind of a, a summary of all inflation expectations. Yeah. Okay. So oh, I know where that. you're going. Okay. You're going five year, five year forwards. Oh, very good. Which one is that? That is the second one. 2.35. Yeah. yeah. Five year, five year forwards and five year, right. five year forwards. That's you tease it out of 10 year treasury yields. And that is what investors are saying. Inflation five years from now will be in the subsequent five year period. So this is long mm -hmm. run inflation expectations. Consumer price inflation expectations, 2.35. That, I would say, is very consistent with the Fed's target on CPI. Yeah, because they're, they're based on the CPI, right? CPI. So, yep. you know, yep. uh, core, uh, the, the core consumer expenditure inflator is, say, two, given the differences in measurement and every, uh, composition everything else. 
CPI, if you said 2.35, that would be, in my view, consistent with the Fed's. So the market is saying, investors are saying, in the long run, inflation is consistent with what the Fed has credibility long run. Okay, so what's 3.41? Is that the difference between... Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Chris. You yeah, got Chris got it. He gets yeah. the cowbell, baby. He won. Right. Yeah. Way to go, Chris. Although I had to give Ryan credit, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. All right, absolutely. Ryan, that's for you. That's that definitely for you. Oh, Chris yeah. can have it. Once he had, once I got the, once I heard the five-year, five-year, yeah. break-even was next. So. It was five-year, that's five-year break-even. So what that is, yeah. is you take a look at the five-year, uh, the yield on the five-year treasury security, and you compare that to the five-year treasury inflation protected security. So you buy that bond, you get, you know, that yield uh uh, plus in, in inflation, CPI inflation. And that difference between those two is the what investors are saying they think inflation will be over the next five years. 3.41%. Okay, that, that's a problem. That's high. That's the mm -hmm. highest it's been, I believe, in the data that we have back to 2003. And I think that's when tips started trading. Correct. Uh, right back in 2003. It, it, it's now it breached the high that we achieved a, a few months ago before uh, uh, before Russia Ukraine and now we're above it. And if you look at it since Russia you, you invaded Ukraine, it's moving straight up. It's moving straight up. And I, that data, that point, I, that data I just gave to you, that was from yesterday. Three point four one. Yeah, it's tracking oil prices. Yeah, it goes it goes to oil prices, but and you're you know, maybe it's overstating the case because it's oil, but nonetheless, I no, mean, it's still concerning. Yep. And that and that's the key, I think. Uh, driving factor between two different scenarios, a scenario where inflation kind of moderates back down when, you know, Russia, Ukraine abates as an issue and oil prices come back in when the pandemic has faded away and supply chains right themselves and labor markets get back to something more normal. Uh, but if we have inflation expectations that come unhinged and untethered, then you get into a situation where you might get into some kind of wage price spiral where wages feed on prices, prices feed on wages. That's a much more endemic, persistent form of inflation. And that that could be a problem. And that's where the, the Fed would say, hey, I, I got to raise interest rates much more aggressively because uh, I got to break that cycle. I don't want to get into that that, that kind of uh, environment and, and push on the economy a lot. And that's a so, fodder for that's a fodder for a recession. Exactly. I'd say that's, so that's a fodder a for a recession. Yeah, so so speaking of expectations, I know you guys are going to go into the big topic. My, my uh, no, we've been in the big topic. All right. Well, coming, my kids are coming in and out of the big topic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I got to run. My kids are expecting dinner. Oh, you yeah. got to go? Yeah. Sorry. No, 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 Please no, go. no. That's the first time he, he's, he, you know, he, he's given us the boot there, Chris. Mm. But he knows uh, we're in good hands. Yeah. yeah, go yeah, ahead. No, I'm only good. teasing. I'm All only right. teasing. It's, no, it's no, please Friday, feel free. So. All right, All Ryan. Right, thanks care. very much. Talk right. to you later. Yeah, take care. Uh, okay, uh, one more thing on oil, uh, and then I want to talk uh, a, a bit about uh, non-energy commodities, and that's the outlook for oil. Okay, this is the way we're, I'm just going to frame the way I think about this, and then you guys tell me if you think the frame is a good one, if it's right, wrong, how would you change it, you know, so forth and so on. And this is going to the outlook now, because we're talking about the oil price outlook, which is really critical, to, obviously, to what's going on here and how it's all going to play out. So my thought is that, uh, you know, the, the issue is demand and supply. And uh, right now, because of uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, the West, the U.S. is putting increasing sanctions on Russia. And one of the 
mo most recent developments is that the U.S. and some private sector companies, and I think some other countries like Canada, are no longer buying Russian oil. So uh, that uh, that means that uh, that that's coming off the market, and you know it could go. It might be able to go someplace else. It might go to, be able to go to China or someplace else. But that's a pretty hard pivot, even just physically doing it. You know, taking it because it's coming into the U.S. or Canada. And now you got to turn around and ship it in another direction. That's not easy to do, and that's certainly not going to happen very quickly. That oil has to be replaced. Uh, by something, and we talked about U.S. oil frackers kind of kicking into gear, and we might get more oil there. The Saudis might produce more oil, UAE, some other, uh, Iran, so forth and so on. But if you do the arithmetic, and this is an assumption, this is the outlook, I'm assuming that about a million, million and a half barrels a day kind of get uh, dislocated here, that that's Russian oil that's not being uh, being consumed in the global market, and we got to replace that, and that means temporarily higher prices. And that's the my baseline outlook, meaning the most likely scenario. And in that, if that, if that's right, and I'm also assuming that, you know, Russia, Ukraine, things kind of start to resolve themselves a bit towards the second half of the year. And if that's the case, the peak in this dislocation is between now and mid-year, one to one and a half million barrels a day. If that's the scenario, and again, it's the, my baseline view, that gives you oil prices on average uh, they're higher now, but on average between now and mid-year of about 100 barrels uh, a dollar. That's kind of where we're set. Remember, we we're $75 a barrel before all this began. I'm saying it's going to average $100 a barrel uh, through mid-year, and then it'll start to come back in. And by this time next year, it settles in back close to that $75 a barrel oil that we had before all of this. And I, you know, I'm obviously waving my hands here a lot about you know how things play out in Russia and Ukraine. And obviously, it's a mess. And Ukrainian people are getting, you know, just crushed, and it's just, you know, very disconcerting to watch. Uh, and I and I don't know how it's going. I don't know exactly how this all plays out, but that's the kind of the working assumption. If, however, things uh, go uh, astray, it, it plays out less well, and other countries start to impose sanctions on Russia and stop buying oil. And let's say two to two and a half million barrels a day come off, then that's consistent with prices. Oil prices they could do about 125 bucks a barrel on average through mid-year, and then in the dark scenario, the darkest scenario, uh, even Europe, which is very dependent on uh, Russian energy supplies, says no more. I'm, you know, we're going to sanction. And three to three and a half million barrels come offline. And by the way, I didn't mention it, but Russia produces about five million, a little over five million barrels a day for export. So let's say three to three and a half million barrels is the peak between now and mid-year. Then you get oil prices that are closer to $150, you know, per barrel uh, between now and mid-year. And if you kind of do the arithmetic, you know, what does it mean for U.S. gasoline prices and U.S. economy? And, and given all the uh, kind of the ancillary effects that would have on confidence and sentiment and stock prices and inflation expectations and monetary policy, I would say if we get the baseline $100 a barrel, you know, we'll be fine. The economy will be will grow you know, strongly this year, everything sticks to script. We get back to full employment by the end of the year and inflation starts to moderate significantly by next year. But if we get into that 125 buck a barrel and certainly that 150 buck a barrel, that's the fodder for recession, particularly $150 a barrel. You know, that would be gasoline prices, you know, that are, that are you know, well north of $5 per gallon, probably closer to six. And that would be, given all the nonlinearities in the economy and sentiment and everything else, that probably would mean you know, recession. Okay.
that that's a long-winded kind of story narrative description of, of the outlook what do you think is that a good way of thinking about things and let me begin with Juan Juan do you have a perspective on this anything you would say that uh, uh, about that frame and, and and just the numbers uh I, I think that uh, yeah, I agree with the, the baseline. Uh, it seems uh, the most likely scenario right now. Uh, Russia, I think that when we start seeing the data coming, uh, we're going to see a decline in, in in production from Russia, which is probably the same as exports. We don't usually get data on exports, but production will give you uh, that number around 1, 1.5 in the next uh, few weeks. Um, I think that is there is a the the is is a is a scenario that is more there has more it has more uncertainty than than usual for even for oil prices because it all depends on a conflict that you know who knows how how it's gonna play out but uh, there is a there, there could be another scenario where uh, prices don't go up to one fifty but they also stay higher for longer. Uh, let's say around 100 through the end of the year, just because these sanctions that are already in place, financial sanctions, uh, oil companies pulling out of Russia, that's gonna ha have an impact on Russia's capacity to, man to maintain oil production. Uh, remember that just to keep production steady, you would need to invest like uh, aggressively uh, every every month just to keep production steady. Uh, so if you're not able to do that, production capacity starts to decline over time. So if that is that the case, if we say one million barrels uh, permanent uh, destruction of uh, capacity, I mean that could be replaced by Saudi Arabia or other countries. But uh, mm. there there are not many countries with that capacity even for for to add one million barrels. That's I would say point. that. There is only only Saudi Arabia is the only country with that kind of spare capacity. So if Saudi Arabia step in and increases production by one million barrel, that will leave that global spare capacity like a very thin. And markets usually react to that. Yeah, interesting point. Yeah, it, uh, that that uh, goes back to your point about uh, U.S. frackers not kicking into gear because they're fearful that you know it's a supply shock and supply might come come back but here you're saying well maybe not certainly not in russia so hopefully that kind of starts to work into the thinking of these frackers and they start putting in more rigs and right. produce more wells and i think uh the, it has been in the news that the u.s met with the venezuelan uh, the venezuelan government and that kind of uh, I, I was i think it was unexpected uh, most people it caught most people by surprise and, and Venezuela oil industry is devastated. I mean, they wouldn't be able to increase output by more than 200,000 barrels in, in, in maybe like a month or two. But I'm thinking that the government's thinking about approaching Venezuela might be more like a medium or long-term play because Venezuela do has the potential to be a major producer, but it will require a lot of investment and it will take maybe one, two or three years to get there. So there could be a scenario where the government is thinking, well, this situation in Russia is going to be, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And we have to think more like down the road, how do we get uh, that output replaced from somewhere else? 
Got it. Got it. Tom, Tom, any, what, uh, what do you think about the way I kind of frame the outlook and the, and the outlook itself? Anything to add there? Yeah. So I think the way you framed it is, is accurate. And that's what I expect as well, about a million barrels coming off. There's one little bit of color that I'd add to that, which is that we were expecting even before the invasion for a really large increase in supply this year from countries other than Russia, you know, the OPEC block is planning on boosting production by a lot. So we were actually expecting supply this year to exceed demand before the invasion, which meant that there was going to be oil flowing into inventories. So even if Russia, even if we lose a million barrels per day from Russia, that doesn't necessarily mean that we have a shortfall in supply that we can't meet demand. Probably we still will be able to meet demand. It'll just be much more evenly matched between supply and demand this year. Got it. That's a good point too. Thank you for that. And Chris, anything you want to add? Uh, first of all, do you agree with that frame and the kind of the numbers broadly and anything else you want to add? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with the frame. Um, I think that there's two things I would like to add. One is as important as oil is, it's not just oil. Um, if I were to throw a number out, the number I would have thrown out would have been 345. And that's the price of natural gas in euros per megawatt hour. Mm. And you know what it was last year? 40? 16. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and, and also, you know, the U.S. has actually stepped up to the plate. In December, the U.S. became the number one exporter of liquefied natural gas, and two-thirds of those cargoes go to Europe. Um, but gas is very important. And then the second point that I would I would want to make that's a little bit absent from this conversation, you know, I'm an energy economist, but I'm also a climate economist. And one of the things that we look at are carbon price scenarios where, okay, well, what is the energy price that is necessary to get us off of fossil fuels? Okay, well, here we have basically a carbon tax that has been put in place by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And wow. instead of running to renewables, everybody wants to drill more, you know? <laughs> Everybody wants to put up freaking That's holes in the point. ground. I so what, what, how yeah. is this transition going to happen? You know, um, if, if, you know, we get the signal from the market, now we want to undo it. <laughs> yeah. Although, and that know, goes to nice the misery to, index. It would be right? nice to be able to plan for it and adjust to yeah. it and not That's just the, like, yeah. That's where right. I would want, that's where I was trying to go, which is yeah. to say basically like, if this transition is going to happen, it's going yeah. to have to be a gradual one because yeah. the political consequences of a sharp and sudden increase are too much to bear for any president at any time. Got it. Okay. So we're all kind of coalescing around the kind of on average between now and mid-year, a hundred bucks a barrel, something like that, which would probably translate into, what would that translate? That translate to pretty close to what? $4.50 for a cost of a gallon of regular unleaded nationwide, something like that. Yeah. That's kind of Okay, so that's a uh, kind of the uh, the uh, the benchmark for for our forecast. Hey, um, Jet, I have a, another colleague here that we've kind of not brought into the conversation. I, I apologize, Jesse, Jesse Rogers, Jess, Jesse, you've been on uh, Inside Economics already uh, at least once, maybe more. Yeah, yes, I have. Hi, Mark. Great to be with everybody. In, in, Wonderful no, conversation. Unfortunately, right? you're not going to be with us very long. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm going to do, Greg Jesse. I, I'm, gonna, I'm tired, I, I'm, and I think everyone's tired. Uh, yeah. I'm going to cut the conversation. We, it was a great conversation about oil, and I don't want to do, you know, I don't want to short shrift what's going on in the rest of the commodity complex because there's a lot going on. So I'm going to have you come back, okay? And then 
we're going to talk um, mano a mano on 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 that. Is that okay? Is that all right? Okay a a return ticket. You got to. Yeah, re- yep, I'll absolutely. Take it. Yeah, yeah, I'll take it. Okay, good. Uh, and so we'll have you back in the next week, two or three, to talk about non-energy commodity prices: wheat, corn, neon, palladium, titanium. You know all the stuff that. He's gotten really messed up here. Aluminum. Sounds good. I mean, it, it's great to have the first cut of all this expertise and all these great views going back and forth. So at least be able to say that. I heard yeah. it yeah, before everybody good. else. Well, I do want to thank everybody. Uh, any parting words, Chris, to the group? Anything I, you want to mention? As we uh, just uh, thank you to the, the experts here. Yeah, well, well done. I, I actually learned a lot. I, you know, the, Just straightening out those numbers for me on production and consumption was very helpful. I appreciate that. And the tutorial on rigs and wells, uh, all, all very good. Uh, so horizontal drilling. Yeah. Horizontal drilling. Oh, of course, jelly donut and tiramisu. <laughs> How can we forget that? I mean, that's like a, that's a beautiful uh, thing. I always use baklava. Oh. Okay. Oh, yeah, Mr. Lafakis, I'd say the baklava is even. Oh, and yeah. you're Greek. Oh, what yeah, what the heck? <laughs> he took your baklava. Yeah, I oh went Italian. Gosh. I mean, I was I was yeah. making an olive branch to Doritos here, you know, with the tiramisu. <laughs> yeah, the Italian didn't make me hungry. So yeah, very good. Uh, okay, well, very good. And and obviously, uh, we'll be covering Russia, Ukraine, you know, as we go here on the podcast and webinars on Economic View. Please uh, let us know what else you'd like us to talk about. I mean, obviously, uh, this is top of mind, but uh, we, we like your suggestions. Uh, so with that, uh, we're going to call it a podcast. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.